Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We are broadcasting today to over 60 countries from our new studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, which is the entertainment capital of the world, where entertainment and technology converge. We're in the middle of the third most important center in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, angels, VCs and incubators. And Los Angeles is becoming a very important force in startups. And I want to thank you all for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. It's, it's a great honor. It's a privilege. And I love bringing the show to you each week. Now, the sole purpose of this show is to help you run a successful business. And each week I try to give you tips that might ensure your success. You know, we... We can't all be great at everything, and uh, when you have a startup, there are just so many different hats you have to wear, so I try to help you identify where there might be gaps in your expertise. Now, as you know, there's been a tremendous change in a number of industries in the last few years as they've been disrupted by innovation. And this disruptions made it almost impossible for the legacy companies to compete. Companies like Amazon, Uber and Airbnb represent just a few of those. So what are disruptive innovations? Firstly, from a customer perspective, they're cheaper. They're more accessible from a usability or a distribution perspective, and they use a business model that has structural cost advantages compared to the existing solutions. When all three of these characteristics are present, price, usability, and structural cost advantages, it's almost impossible for an existing business to respond to the competition. Legacy companies are usually settled with fixed infrastructure. They've got highly trained staff and uh, or employees. They've usually got an outmoded distribution system, which makes it difficult for them to quickly respond to a new environment. So when you put all those together, they're on the downhill slippery slope to hell Firing a high percentage of staff, disrupting core business distribution partners and writing off millions or even billions of dollars of investment, it's just impossible for legacy companies to contemplate. But it's one of those, if they do, they're damned, and if they don't, they'll get killed. Historically... Disruptions have occurred at the low end of the market because disruptive products are usually cheaper, more accessible, and built on new technology architectures. Usually, quite often, they weren't quite as good as existing products at the high end, but they were cheaper. So this low cost enabled them to attract customers who were being priced out of the existing market. So Apple began by making a computer that was cheap enough for students to learn on, and nobody would have considered purchasing a DEC mini computer was just out of the question. Sony made the transistor-based television popular because it was portable. All of a sudden, we didn't have this thing that weighed 14 ton. And prior to the transistor, this just wasn't possible. So new technologies combined with business model innovation provided a structural cost advantage necessary for innovators to just go in and take large chunks of the market. But what was holding, really holding the legacy companies captive was their own cost structures and a focus on driving marginal profit increases. 
This forced them to continue making decisions on a short-term basis, trying to drive more value out of an outdated infrastructure and not investing in long-term changes and adoption of new technology platforms. This clouded their ability to stop the things that are cheaper, more accessible, and built on an advantaged cost structure. So let's look at a few examples. Start with Uber. The, the platform op, uh, that um, Uber adopted allowed them to offer cheaper, more accessible transportation options with, they've got structural cost advantages over both taxis and without doubt, private car ownership. So over the next few years, less and less people are going to buy cars and more and more people are going to use Uber just for their own use. Now, the reason that Google's Android phones disrupted Nokia was because of the approach of creating an ecosystem of application development on top of its platform which allowed them to build a far more comprehensive solution. And of course, it was cheaper, more accessible, and had structural cost advantages over Nokia. Think about 23andMe. Have they potentially disruptive, disrupted pharmaceutical companies? Not yet, but they will could because 23andMe has a vast amount of data that could enable them to start developing drugs in a cheaper, more accessible and structurally advantaged model. In each of these examples, you know, the ultimate end is destruction. The Incumbent managers have tried to address the challenges by making the best use of their existing infrastructure, but they can't. It's not the right technology, and they have to reorganise their total business model. You know, taxi companies have tried to leverage regulation to preserve the value of their licence um, plate costs and the drivers. Nokia tried to protect its closed ecosystem and pre preserve employment for the thousands of staff members. The drug companies have got very strong incentives to make the best use of their high-end research and development functions Bef before they can embrace the radically different path that 23andMe may take. And over the long term, each of these short-term decisions will lead to failure. Information's at the centre. It's at the core of modern disruption. There are new technology opportunities to attack industries from different angles. The Uber platform, launched in a fragmented, fragmented taxi and limo market, to let them come into transportation and logistics far more broadly than they would have otherwise been able to. Netflix has captured a huge market through streaming video and using the data it had to radically change the content production process. Google mapped the world and then took its understanding of traffic patterns and street layouts and a whole bunch of other information to enable them to build autonomous cars. So there's absolutely no doubt the tremendous disruptions underway. These new players create products that are cheaper and more accessible than their legacy counterparts. But it's no longer necessarily starting at the low end of the market. It's starting with a source of data and then building the information-enabled system just to attack a complete incumbent industry. So if you're in a legacy industry and you're confronted by a disruptive competitor, you should ask yourself three questions. First question, how can you adapt quickly in the face of this new type of competition? 
Secondly, how can you comprehensively evaluate the new threat? And thirdly, what capabilities are you going to need and where are you going to get them when data is a crucial piece of any disruption? And of course, more importantly, once you've identified these potential threats, you need to make the right long-term investments. And unfortunately, discarding much of the billion-dollar investments or the hundreds of millions of dollars or the million dollars of investments that you've already made. But you certainly can't sh focus on short-term short profit incentives. Now, over 250 million Americans are eligible to go to the polls this November to elect a president with one caucus and one primary now behind us. Both the Republican and Democratic parties are attracting record numbers. Just before I came on air, I saw the numbers from New Hampshire, and it's extraordinary. More people are coming out to vote than ever before. And the addition of Donald Trump to the race and the tooth and nail fight between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, it's been entertaining, it's involved people, and they're coming out to vote. Now, let's hope the excitement continues through to November and we continue to entice a major percentage of the population to vote. Now, um, just in case you're wondering, uh, when I last saw the numbers about 15 minutes ago, Trump was way in front with about 35% of the vote and Kasich was in second place with about 14 and on the Democratic side... Bernie was beating Hillary by about 15 points. So that, of course, could change before the end of the night, but it's certainly interesting. Now, one question that's been asked is where are these big crowds that have been attracted by the candidates? How much of that is attributed to social media? Is social media making the big difference? Well... Surprise, surprise. Most Americans prefer cable news to social media. They also prefer it to websites when learning about the election. 91% of US adults say they got new information about the election in the last week. So 91% of Americans are paying attention to the election. That's incredible. And 24% of those say cable TV news is the most helpful source. Social media came in second with 14%, putting it on a par with local TV that's also at 14%, while 13% favoured news websites and apps. The survey also found that cable TV is the most prominent source for people who are very likely to participate in a primary or caucus. However, young adults aged between 18 and 29 overwhelmingly say social media is the most helpful source, while older respondents, those over 65, rely mostly on cable news and only 1% say social media is their preferred source. So even though cable news is ranked as the most helpful overall, it appears that most people are getting their information from a variety of sources. 45% learned election news from at least five different sources. 35% learned from at least three sources. Only 9% get their election news from just one source. And if you happen to care about which media source appeals to be, appears to be the most archaic, National print coverage came in last place overall, even behind radio and late-night comedy shows. So more people get their news from late-night comedy shows and get their news from newspapers. Newspapers are screwed. They're lousy. I don't even know why they're still around. And this speaks to the precipitous decline of print as a mode of news. You know, I, I get news from several newspapers but I get it online where it's updated every 30 seconds 
you get on, you get a newspaper, you're getting news that was written yesterday. I don't want news from yesterday. Are you a member of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management? This is the premier organization for business in the US. If you are serious about improving your skill level, your status and your network, you should really join today. I'm the honorary president for 2016 and it is an amazing organization. So if you're not a member, go to AISMM.us and join right now. Go on. Get off me for a minute. Just type in AISMM. AISMM.us and go online and join. Now, my guest last week was Eric Riz, brilliant guy. And if you listen to the interview, it was really enlightening and we learned a hell of a lot from it. Eric's the CEO of Toronto based Empty Cubicle, an HR related software company which is revolutionising the IT recruiting industry. This is another disruptive company. It's going about the marketplace totally different way and all of those legacy HR companies are going to be gone. Now, the day after last week's show, Eric was named by B2B News Network to its HR Influencer Index as one of the top gurus and virtuosos bringing innovation and insight into human capital management and the future of work trends. How brilliant is that? See, he probably got it because he was interviewed on this program. That's what happens. Congratulations, Eric. Brilliantly done. Wonderful. <clears throat> My guest today is enterprise and big data expert Lloyd Marino. Now, Lloyd's CEO of Veta Capital. And he is one hell of a great guy. He's a fellow medal member. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I think if you went and picked the most popular guy at medal, apart from Ken Rakowski, you'd probably come up with um, Lloyd Marino. He, he, he's a great guy. He'll do anything for anybody. He's, um, he's super. And uh, he's worked with companies like Expedia, Visa, and the US government, creating big data solutions. He brings to the table a quarter century of experience working in senior management roles, including Chief Technology Officer and Chief Information Officer for various organisations ranging from emerging growth startups to Fortune 500 companies. Lloyd Marino is one very smart duck. And I'll be back with Lloyd immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people, the services that they provide, and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick. That's extremely difficult to create a successful business. 
you know, we look at the failure rates of something around 97%. So it's obvious that um, we entrepreneurs and business people need all the help we can get. And that's why I urge you every week to ensure that you've got terrific mentors and uh, to read as much as you can and to watch as many business programs as you can to, uh, and take on board the advice that works for you, that, that fits your environment. Now, we hear the term big data everywhere these days. It appears to be the solution to a myriad of problems in almost every industry. It's been around for a fair while, and on the surface, it seems simple enough. Collect as much data as you can from as many people as possible. Analyse it and collate it, and presto, it produces the most effective and efficient solution to any, any problem. Easy. Well, to obtain a simple solution, the application is extremely complex. Big data is being used by cities, and these are the ones we can understand, to determine traffic routes, public transport schedules, how to get 100,000 people away from a, a major sporting event, for those sorts of things. But how does small business, or even medium-sized business, use big data? Now, my guest today is enterprise and big data expert Lloyd Marino. He's the CEO of Aveta Capital, Capital, Aveta Global, who is one, he's a hell of a great guy. He's a fellow metal member, and he's worked with companies like Expedia, Visa, and the US government to create big data solutions. Lloyd is regarded as a tech whisperer, a true master at translating and communicating Byzantine technical processes that elude even the savviest business minds into language that they can grasp. Now, Lloyd's equally conversant in the languages of business and technology. Therefore, senior executives on both the management and the tech sides of today's data-dependent marketplace regularly call on him to solve problems, complex problems that are data-driven. Lloyd brings to the table a quarter century of experience working in senior management roles, including services chief technology officer and chief information officer for various organisations ranging from emerging growth startups to Fortune 500 companies. Hi, mate. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hey, Bob. Great to be here. You don't look that old. So how did you get a quarter of a century of um, this high-level experience behind you? Started I've when you were doing... three. <laughs> I, I Literally, this is um, what I've been doing my entire life. I've been in technology my entire career, um, starting when I was about 17 when I started my first company. And then shortly thereafter, um, worked my way up into the corporate world and uh, found my way into travel technologies at the at the ripe age of about 22. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, I just turned 47, so. Oh, did you? You don't look that old, I've got to tell you. So you're doing well. Now, I appreciate it. How did you? Um, what took you into into that into the technology area? Because you know, 25 years ago, it wasn't the um, hot, hip, happening thing that it is now, was it? That's true. Um, I actually grew up in South Florida in the Boca Raton area. Um, my no. father, was a, he was a senior staff engineer at Motorola, and so I've always been you know, quite involved in engineering. But um, growing up in that area, IBM and Motorola both had big presence there. And so um, I actually uh, got into technology because of my father. You know, he would check out computers, kind of like library books, uh, right. he was an engineer. And uh, while he was away at work, I was at home fiddling around with these um, wonderful machines and um, just had a knack for it. And I've uh, been doing it ever since. It was uh, Sure, it was close to Mo Motorola and IBM, but it's also not that far away from the beach. <laughs> so, Very so, true. So you're a, you're a, a studious kind of guy rather than a, a surfer kind of guy. I'm actually a little bit of both. Oh, you're so, good. Um, yeah. Work-life work balance is critical. Okay. 
you talk about the five biggest questions that every CEO needs to know before diving into big data. Um, let's talk about the first question that a CEO needs to know, I guess. What type of data do they need to collect? I know that depends on, on what the company um, does, but um, how does the CEO qualify what information he needs Right now, we can find out every single thing almost about everybody. So if, if you've got a, a company doing a specific thing, how do you determine which information is beneficial to collect and which is just going to clog up the system? Yeah, and that really depends on what purpose the CEO has in order to drive the business forward. So typically what you see in a, in a small to medium-sized business is they want to use social data to drive marketing efforts, right? right. They want to collect a, a bunch of social media information about an individual to figure out what their buying habits are. Now, for a small to medium-sized business, that could be a very expensive proposition, uh, and therefore, you, you really need to have a purpose. What are you going to do with that data once you collect it? You've got to have a game plan. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the biggest takeaway from from. In that particular topic is as a CEO, if you're going to embark on collecting big data or, or drive the business using big data, you've got to have a purpose for that information, especially if it's around marketing and social media. You know, is it, you know, in some cases, what you find out, you, know, you got to be careful with for, careful of what you wish for. Sometimes what CEOs find out is that their products that are on the market aren't very well received, you know, in, in the social world. And so, you, again, you've got to have a purpose. Well, that, that's still great information because it enables you to at least take action and do something about it, right? So, um, yeah. and, until you gather the information, um, is it possible to sort of detail what it is that's going to be of benefit to you if you don't really know what's out there? Well, again, if you have a purpose, then you have an, an actual um, you know, path on what on which, to, on which to take in order to gather the information that you, you need to get to that purpose. So like you mentioned earlier, all that information is pretty much readily available on the Internet. In fact, what you're starting to see uh, are companies creating data sets about individuals. Here are a block of individuals that like coffee. You know, we've got a data set of 50 million. Here's a data set of individuals who like this particular widget. And, and you're starting to see these data sets become readily available. So they're out there. Um, but if you don't have a purpose for them, then they really mean nothing to you. Right. So yeah, the second question um, is, I guess, can you monetize the results that you get from this big data? But I guess the second question is, do you always have to monetize it? I mean, and, and is monetizing it a short-term proposition or is it benefits that will accrue to the company over a long term or is it all of the above? It's a little bit of, of both. Um, I, I always tell an organization, small and medium-sized business, if you're going to embark on biz, big data, I think, this is a personal opinion, I think the best way to do that is look internally first. Collect data about your organization, about how your own business practices are happening. Look internally first. Uh, a lot of the times what you'll see is an organization that has, for example, uh, an IT staff that says, hey, God, boss, we need, to, we need to get on the big data bandwagon. We need to start doing all this stuff. Um, and you're selfishly saying that because IT departments, you know, just be honest, they want to better their resumes. They want to work on the latest and greatest gadgets. Yeah. And they wind, up, they wind up forcing an organization to potentially spend money unnecessarily on technologies that they wouldn't necessarily need. Again, it goes back to having a purpose. So if you had a purpose to actually drive that big data, and for example, looking internally, are our processes and procedures streamlined? Are we looking at things uh, in the right manner? Is, is our current way of doing things uh, a modern way of doing things? Are we using the right tools? And what you find, what business leaders find out by looking internally first is they, they find out that their ecosystem is potentially either not very streamlined or 
worst case scenario, just broken. Um, right. You know, there's there's always the process from beginning to end, and if there's something off in the middle, even just a little bit, you could have yourself a, a bit of a problem. Is that how, how does that? I'm, I'm just struggling with this a bit. How does that qualify for big data? I mean, 25 years ago, we marketers would do a sort of an audit of the business and look at. Um, Look at every element of the of the company from the front door to the back door, and work out what was working and what wasn't, and what needed better technology and what didn't, and where the gaps were in in um, your staff and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Why is why is it different now than it was then, or is it the same with a different name? It's the same with a different name. I mean, I, I think if you look at the word big data in general, it's it's kind of, uh, it's very misleading. Yeah. So there are not a lot of companies out there that have big data, contrary to popular belief. Um, big data is, uh, you're talking about massive amounts of information that, that use specialized equipment and specialized software to crunch numbers. Yes. And a lot, of, a lot of companies say, oh, we're doing big data, we're doing big data. You're not doing big data. You have a lot of data but you're not doing big data. Um, so if you're really thinking in terms of small business to medium-sized business, what you're really talking about is analytics. You're not talking about big data. You're talking about relational databases. You're talking about a way of, of understanding the numbers that you actually do have. Right. And internally, internally now, nowadays, you have CRM systems, you have ERP systems, even small companies. So they, they do collect a fair amount of data that they can internalize and, and analyze. And so that's what I mean by, you know, those processes, you know, finding gaps, as you put it, um, gap analysis, and for me, look, looking at the word analysis, um, that, that kind of lends itself to analyzing data. Um, and so when you look internally and look at your process and procedures and look at how sales is doing your job all the way down to manufacturing, there's a lot of information that you can crunch there. And there are a lot of gaps you could potentially find in order to, to clean up your ecosystem. Okay, I've been working with a, um, a group out of South America that um, is using big data. Um, they're, they're an insurance group and they pull all this information in and determine um, people's um, um, socioeconomic groups, their ages, what they're buying, what they're not buying, what insurance coverage they might need and what they what they don't. Then it, it's analysed and um, it sort of spits out that Mary Smith um, fits this pattern and she's likely to buy a Rolex watch. <laughs> Probably not that likely to buy a Rolex watch in Latin America, but nevertheless. Um, and then they use um, location-based marketing to determine um, where they're shopping and to drive them to buy certain things. And then they can um, text them and say, you know, is, have you got your watch insured? Um, if not, push here. Um, it, it, is that, isn't that... That, that's what I imagine to be the typical use of big data to identify people's buying patterns, their, their traveling patterns, how often they go to the local mall, what's in the local mall, and how do you drive them to buy a particular thing. Is that not the, the yes. most likely application of big data? It, it's definitely um, the most popular uh, area of big data when it comes to to uh, educating the marketplace. Um, right. th you know, there's a lot of big data happening, and you mentioned it kind of on the forefront of this is in, in government, for example, uh, yeah. weather pattern, traffic patterns. You know, those, those are real big data applications. Um, it's not to say that marketing or advertising side of it is not uh, real, but um, it, it's a in my mind, there's a there's a difference. There's applications for big data that that tackle real world problems, and then there's applications for big data that um, basically you and I volunteer. We are the actual product, so we're Google's product because we're collecting tons of information about our behavior. Or the insurance company, or the insurance company's potential product because they're collecting a lot of information about our behavior, and and you and I opt into that. We freely give that information in order to get something back. Um, 
but you're right. That is, you know, that is kind of the most popular big data application. And a lot of this target marketing or this, you know, this, uh, you know, this location-based marketing is getting really, really complex yeah. um, and getting very, getting very popular. And this is, this is, you know, opening the door to the internet of things, the I, you know, the IOT as you start yeah. to Yeah. So if, if I'm a, um, a medium-sized business and I want to use big data in that way, would I set up my own internal um, processes or would I simply hire companies that do all of that from woe to go and have the technology and continue updating the technology, etc.? Uh, typically, you would want to outsource it. You want to cloud basis because the computing power needed to actually do real big data um, is quite hefty. And so you get you get better economies of scale if you went to the cloud and, and buy your services from someone like an AWS, or Amazon sure. Web Services, yep. or Microsoft Azure platform. Um, you know, but typically, a, a small, medium-sized business, I, I always recommend that if they're going to embark on collecting information and big data, start small. Um, you know, look at demographics or sociographics, you know, um, sociographic information. You know, start collecting small data sets about behavior. Again, because this goes back to the idea of introducing that into your ecosystem and getting your, your employees um, kind of used to the concept of of, of realizing the information that they're getting and being able to take action on it. So there's three A's of big data in my opinion. You know, you gotta analyze it, you gotta yep. automate it, and you have to take action on it. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. So again, I have a a, a, a confusion in my mind and you know when you talk about big data, um, you're recommending that um, companies start small. Is, isn't that a contradiction? I mean, if you're going out there to get information, or are you talking about doing that through segmenting the market so that you're only getting a lot of data about a small part of your overall business? Or what do you mean by start small? Start small with big data seems to me to be a contradiction because you're getting this wealth of information pouring in. Um, and I guess the, next, the lead-on question from that is if I've got all this information coming in and I've got somebody else doing it and uh, they're doing the analytics, does it, does it really matter whether I start small or go the whole hog apart from the financial aspect? Yeah, I think it does. Um, again, you want to kind of evolve your big data uh, department, if you will. So if you had an, a data scientist on board in your organization or you outsource it, um, the resulting information that you gather, so let's say, you know, when I say start small, I, I said demographics. Collect demographic information about your customer base. Well, if your customer base is a million people, um, it's, a, it's a fairly large data set on one particular category. Yeah. And so once you, once you figure that out and you take action on it, now you know what to do with it. So for example... Um, you may find out that the, most of your customers are located in a very small demographic. Maybe they're all in West Texas, for example, right. or a good portion of them. Well, that just gave you a result. Now, now you realize that a lot of your efforts either have to be concentrated in West Texas to keep your customer base, or you, you can figure out from there, you know what, why, why is West Texas the biggest customer base. Well, it's because we have a sales st staff there that really is kicking butt. Um, so maybe we need to take our efforts in our other locations and, and double them up or learn from what's been happening in West. So once you have that resulting data set, now you can do something with it. So you go to the next step. And this is what I mean, you know, by taking action and you just keep repeating that process. So you do demographics, then maybe the next step is you look at a different market, you, you target uh, a different audience of people, you figure out what the resulting set is from there, and then you keep the process going. And then ultimately you have what is um, you know, real-time big data information. How, how often does um, big data turn up um, totally surprising results that, that catch companies off um, 
off guard that they find out information that they um, about their business that they had never realised. Quite often, especially um, in, if you do an internal kind of analytics exercise, um, a lot of the time business leaders find out that their their staff um, isn't as automated as they thought they were. So processes and procedures are happening quite manually as opposed to in an automated fashion. So uh, what, what typically happens is they get their their inner workings or their inner ecosystem more automated and more reliant on, on the automation of data. And then externally, um, you know, I'll give you an example. One of our clients is a advertising firm. And I don't know if you ever walk down the city streets of New York um, or even here in Los Angeles and you see construction sites that are just plastered with posters. Yep. And, and so, you know, typically, and, the thought is, and here's the bottom of the barrel, you know, an advertising company has money left over and they say, well, we want our, our product on the streets. Let's, let's pay for this. And what, what people think is happening is that, you know, people are walking by looking at these posters and then they start collecting data on who's actually looking through a, a technology. We called it eyes on. It's a camera technology that actually can see who's looking at these posters. Right. And what happened is in certain certain areas, nobody's looking at these posters. And that was very surprising to this to this advertising company that, you know, people are just simply walking by and, and not you know, not realizing there's advertising there. Mm. So it was very surprising. Now had they make that, that, that information public um, to their customers, they wouldn't really have a customer base. So, you know, it it caused them to kind of pivot and, and to look at other areas of revenue. And or and as well make make uh, the uh, the constituents who are walking by a little more apt to look at the advertising that's going on. So of course, you do sound and do lights and do other things that that make things more compelling for the individuals who walk yeah. by to look. That's interesting because advertising agencies for years have kept kept secret the fact that nobody watches their bloody television ads. So <laughs> why they'd want right. people looking at their posters? Um, so if I reckon if I went to 90% of my clients are all um, small to medium-sized businesses, and if I went along to 99% of my clients and said, um, you should begin to take advantage of the big data opportunities that are out there, I reckon 99 out of every 100 would look at me and say, well, what do I do? Where do I start? How do I go about it? I ab- know absolutely nothing about this. Um, so, w- what do you tell them? What's the answer to that question? Uh, well, this, <laughs> this is why companies hire hire us. But yeah, um, well, is that what they need to do? They need to look for um, somebody like yourself or yourself to. Um, to go in and do it all for them? Yeah, I think it helps. Um, I think it helps to have someone in the industry who can tell you what's available to you. Um, but, you know, if you're savvy enough, and, and you know, to be quite candid, a lot of business leaders are really focused on sales. They're focused on, on financials. Um, there's this huge gap. Uh, I actually wrote a book about bridging the gap between business leaders and, and technology folks. There is this kind of huge gap where the business leader kind of puts his hand out and says, look, I don't understand that stuff. I don't understand technology. I don't know what a server is. I don't, I don't care. I just want it to work. And that's a, a really short-sighted approach in my opinion. And of course, I'm biased. You know, I'm, I'm in technology. so. But you know, doing this as many years as I have, I've noticed that um, most business leaders are still kind of hands-off when it comes to the technology stuff. And they really rely on their IT staff or, or the most savvy technical person in the organization to make those decisions. And, and in, our, in today's economic society, you just simply can't do that anymore. You're the business leader. You need to understand this stuff because it is your job to drive your business forward. Um, so to educate yourself on what big data is, on what information is available to you. It behooves you uh, and your organization. Um, but to get to the answer to the question, it, it, it really is start small when it comes to, to looking at big data. 
Um, and it's kind of the wrapping everything we've talked about together. It's, it's, it's have a purpose for it. What are you going to do with it? Start small so that you can, you know, grow methodically about collecting information and understand what it is you're collecting. And again, just take action on it. Use it over and over and over and automate as much as possible so that you don't have a lot of manual intervention involved. I, um, the CEO of a, any business, no matter whether it's small or, or large, has a very complicated path to walk, don't they? They've got um, dozens and dozens of dis- different disciplines that they have to be across and that have to work um, in order for the company to be successful. Um, so isn't, isn't technology one area where you are really better off leaving it to someone who, um, who is an expert, who has been in it for 25 years? Um, for example, um, I drive a Mercedes, something goes wrong with you, uh, with it. Um, I can either take it to a technician who really understands this stuff or I can go out and buy a set of wrenches. Um, and I reckon my car would run a lot better with <laughs> with a mechanic than with my wrenches. Isn't it the same sort of thing that it's such a complex and rapidly changing area that it's extremely difficult for a, a, a CEO that's worried about HR, he's worried about, about, about financials, he may be um, worried about reporting quarterly results, he's worried about operations and sales and marketing, etc. Isn't technology the one area that... Um, he really is better off leaving it to an expert? You know, and I get this question quite a bit, especially from business leaders where they're saying, look, I just don't have the time to understand these things. Um, And my answer is always, you don't have to understand it at a technical level. You you just have to understand it from a business perspective and what the impact is on your business. Um, I'll give you an example. Oftentimes you hear that, or an IT staff will say, we have to upgrade. We have to get new servers. We have to modernize. We have to do all these things. And a lot of the times, the IT staff is looking at doing it for the sake of doing it so they're on the latest and greatest platforms, yeah. not understanding what impact it's going to have for the business. And so if you're a business leader and you say, okay, I hear you, IT staff. I hear that you want to upgrade to the latest version of Windows, for example. Shouldn't you know that there is a potential, especially if you're running custom or specialized software, that doing an upgrade might impact your business. You might find out that your software doesn't work with that. Your line of business software doesn't necessarily work with that latest and greatest version of a product. And so you really have to understand how this stuff is going to impact your business. And I'll give you an example. There's a product out there called um, RightFax. And it's an automated faxing system. We had a law firm who used this just constantly. Their lawyers would sit at their desk. They would fax out these things right from their computer. They wouldn't have to get up and print it out and feed it into a fax machine with an automated faxing system. Well, the IT staff decided they were going to upgrade everyone from Windows XP to Windows 7. And so they did. And they got about halfway through and... They started getting complaints that, you know, our, our right fax system doesn't work. Well, lo and behold it wasn't compatible with the latest version of Windows 7 unless they purchased the upgrade. And so now they're looking at, yet they already made one big leap and a huge expense to do that. Now they've got to take another big leap and another expense in software in order just to get the latest. So what was the bottom line? Did it it really help the business? It did not. The bottom line is it didn't help productivity at all. What it did was it's just a huge expense for the organization. So that's an extreme example, but it, it comes down to, again, the, the business leader, instead of just saying, do what you want, I don't understand this stuff, it, you know, it, it is a very practical way of saying, all right, I, how's this gonna, how's, how is this upgrade going to impact our, our organization? And what, what are the effects? Are you sure none of the software needs, is going to be uh, affected by doing this? Um, and I equate, you, you, you equated this to being a mechanic, and, and there's a lot of similarities there where you just trust that your mechanic is going to you know, tell you that what is wrong with your car is actually what's wrong with your car, as opposed to saying, 
oh, by the way, your timing, you know, you need, we need a new timing belt on this car, even though you came in for brakes. Yeah. Um, and, and you're not going to know the better, right? You wouldn't know whether or not he's telling you a lie or telling you the truth. So, um, understanding it at some level, you don't under, you know, you don't have to understand how to replace a timing belt, but you may have to understand that, you know what? I just did that a year and a half ago. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, there's no way. Isn't the difference though that one's a one's a contractor, the other one is somebody on staff who you pay a lot of money to be a specialist in the technology area, and if they don't give you the right advice, you fire their ass. But how do you know they're giving you the right advice? Yeah, well, you, you have to trust them. But how do you? How do you yeah, okay. Um, now, so if you're gathering and analysing big data, do I now need a whole floor of? mathematical wizards to be able to um, interpret this stuff and work out um, how I can use it and monetize it? Uh, potentially. And this is why I, I, I often tell business leaders they need to start small because if you're not getting a return on in your investment, if you're investing in big data and, you're not, and the results aren't yielding some return on investment, you're not, if you're not able to monetize those results, then why do it in the first place? So, uh, it, again, if you go through the cycle of, you know, rinse and repeat, re, the three A's, if you automate and analyze and you take action and you continue to, to evolve that ecosystem, uh, eventually it should pay for itself and hopefully make you money. Um, and let you, allow you to understand your customer, allow you to understand your business and, and all kinds of. Okay, well. We're out of time, but I, I must admit that you've convinced me that when my clients want to look at big data, I need to get on the phone to Lloyd Marino and, um, and bring him in because it's beyond my level of comprehension and I suspect that it's beyond the level of comprehension of most CEOs or certainly the ones that I deal with. Um, Lloyd, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And if you'd like to know more about Lloyd Marino and Aveta Global, A-V-E-T-T-A Global, go to avetaglobal.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit radio show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week, broadcasting from our new studio on Hollywood Boulevard, which is right in the entertainment capital of the world. The one thing I love about giving presentations about business is um, that this doesn't matter what industry you're in or what country of the world you're in. Everybody experiences similar issues, small companies, big companies. And uh, at last count, I've spoken in, I think, 63 countries and given about 2,000 presentations. And uh, at question time, the questions are pretty much the same. And I think the reason that um, this radio show has become popular globally is because the advice and expertise that we broadcast each week relates to every business, large or small, startup or mature. And that's the reason that I love to um, answer emails that we get. And the first email is from Margaret Hayes, who has a hairdressing salon in Amherst, New York. Margaret writes, great show, Bob, very informative. I also bought your book, and for small business, it is really easy to follow. I'm enjoying it. I presume she means my latest book, which was a couple of years ago now, was called Kick-Ass Marketing. Um, so if you haven't got a copy of Kick-Ass Marketing, you should um, try and dig one out. I'm sure Amazon probably has them still. Uh, Margaret goes on to say you've got a great chapter on added value. 
And this, I think, came about because we talked about added value last week. But I'm still not sure how to add value for clients to come to my salon. Can you give me a few pointers on what I can do? It would be great if we could have someone like you come down and do a workshop here. Do you do that? The experts don't seem to come to smaller towns to do workshops, and we need your sort of guidance. So I'm sure you'd get a huge turnout. Okay. Um, it is unlikely that I will come to Amherst, New York. I'm not even sure where it is, to tell you the truth. Um, but uh, let's look at the added value issue. There are really dozens of things that you could do. Um, you could get customers to call on approach to the salon and then send a junior out to park their car for them. We could make appointments to go to their home or business if people can't get to the salon. Um, you need to make sure that you've got a database of all your clients with details of their birthdays and anniversaries and you know the things that they like and the things that they don't like and any... any um, um, interests that they have for example um, you can send them a special offer for their special day as an add-on to what they normally have done um, if you know they support um, a particular football team and this is appropriate the day a couple of days after the Super Bowl you can give them a congratulations and some sort of a, a bonus because their their team won um, buy a coffee machine and give them a cappuccino or a latte when they sit down. Um, for certain people, give them their nails done for free as a bonus. Get a nail person to come to the salon for a day at a pretty good rate. People love to feel that they're special. Margaret, um, they're just a couple of things off the top of my head that you could do. Um just put yourself in your client's shoes and think the way they do. And uh, you need to differentiate your business from the competitors in the next street. So you need to create things that are different. Added value doesn't cost you much, makes you feel good, and will get you a customer for life. And more importantly, they will go out and talk about you and bring you in more customers. Word of mouth is the most valuable form of advertising. It's the cheapest. In fact, it's almost free. And uh, it's a really powerful way to build your business. As we know, advertising, particularly if you're a small business, simply doesn't work. And for all of you listening, anyone can add value relatively easy, irrespective of what business you're in. So... Get together all of your all of your workmates or all your team or some friends. Sit around and say, okay, how can I add value? What can I give to my customers? Or have them saying, wow, that's great. I didn't expect that. It doesn't have to cost you much. But just um, just think about it. Make, make your customers feel important. I had another email here from Juan Covas of... Madrid, Spain, which I'm not going to have to get to, so I'll get to that next week. But um, it's interesting. It's about uh, the advantage of cloud computing to a small business with just 10 employees, so I'll tackle that next week. So if you're, if you're listening, a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com, subscribe to my monthly newsletter, send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, also become a contact on LinkedIn, very valuable, use it all the time. And uh, if you have a particular guest you might like me to interview or a particular topic you'd like me to address, please email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Um, we're pleased to have been bringing you this show since 2011. It's a long time ago. And to those of you who have joined the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management, thank you. In the meanwhile, remember that if you're not really pushing the envelope, I mean really pushing the envelope, and you're not living right on the edge, then you are taking up way too much fucking space get out of the way let somebody get through that really wants to succeed 
you know, it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do what everybody else does, and that is the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week when I'll be again broadcasting from our new studio on Hollywood Boulevard in the entertainment capital of the world. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.